0: Good morning, I'm Lisa. Okay, you have to be really patient because some of these words are really hard to pronounce. So, okay, here we go. Acts 17, 16 through 23. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the ideals uh, that he saw everywhere in the city. He went to Saginaw to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, And, excuse me, he spoke daily in public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the, (laughs) we'll skip that, (laughs) and the Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picking up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that the Athenians, as well as the foreigners, Athenians seem to spend their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for... I was walking along, I saw many shrines, and one of the altars had in the inscription, to an unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is one I'm telling you about. Thank you.
1: Oh, look at that. Man, I was like, am I going to have to turn around and look at my rear end again? Just made fun of a teenager last week for doing that, and then... All right. Wow, well, if we don't know each other, I'm Rob. I'm like the king of awkward introductions, so it's my superpower. Um, but we are in this short little series where, called Ready, Set, Go, and we're looking at what it means to actually bring our faith into every part of our life. And so today, I just want to start with the fact that, or the reality that if you're here and you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior... I'm glad you're here, and I want you to think about how that came to be. How did you find faith in Jesus Christ? When I thought about that this week, a couple people came to my mind. And I'm guessing for many of you, you came to trust Christ through someone else sharing that faith about Christ with you. You may not even remember exactly what they said, but you probably remember the person. Am I right? You don't even have to raise your hand. You could just give me a little head nod or you're like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Now, if you're here and you're not sure that you believe and follow Jesus, then I'm really glad you're here. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you have questions about God. Maybe even you have questions about the Bible or life's deeper meaning or purpose. Or maybe someone even tried to share their faith with you. I know I've tried to do that. It's, I've had good, bad, and kind of ugly. My guess is the person who tried to share their faith with you didn't do it like the guy in this video. So take a look. Why does that have to happen? Maybe you've experienced this. You've seen this in real life. A couple of you have. I don't think it's the most effective way to connect with someone about the good news that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, and offers us not only eternal life, which I don't want to downplay, but a relationship with the God of the universe, I want to be someone who normally and naturally shares their faith. I know I have awkward introductions, but when I'm talking about Jesus, I want it to come out naturally, I want it to come out normally, I want it to come out like it's a part of my life. And I hope you do too. Because I think many of us, really, even though we want to, we don't do that. We don't say what Paul said. As Lisa read, Paul started speaking in the marketplace. He spoke in the religious synagogues. He spoke then so well that they invited him to this place called the Areopagus, this place where the philosophers and the cultural influencers of the day, like where they debated all the latest ideas. And Paul starts actually very graciously People of Athens, I see that you are very religious. I see that you are trying to find the sacred in what you experience. He starts with this, and we'll look next week, actually, at what it means to speak and share in normal, natural ways, like how to actually do that. Today, though, we're going to look at why we often don't do that. So, last week when we talked about getting ready, we talked about this reality that faith in Christ is actually for every part of your life, that you can invite God into those things. And the extremes of that are either insulating our faith, thinking that we've got to protect it, so we do Christian activities and we hang out with Christian people and we listen to Christian music. It's all insulated. Or we go to the other extreme and we kind of ignore our faith. We pull it out or put it on on Sundays. And then we put it away after church or after a religious thing or a spiritual thing because it really doesn't have any power or relevance for the rest of our life. And so those are the extremes that we were talking about last week of avoiding and living in this holy tension in the middle. This week, there's a holy tension as well, and it's on this idea of getting set to really consider what Paul said. And in order to consider what Paul said, I think we have to look at what led him to say that. English theologian uh, John Stott, he wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, and he said, we don't say what Paul says because we don't feel what Paul feels, because we can't see what Paul sees. See, I think if we want to be people who normally and naturally share their faith in the other parts of their life, we first start by seeing what Paul sees. So let's look at what he saw. In Acts 17, it says that Paul was greatly distressed because he saw a city full of idols. Now, this is Athens, so there are statues, figures, and temples but it wasn't just those things, and it wasn't even that he saw people following, like not following his God in his way. The the writer of Acts he could have used this word "blepo." It's this word for see or notice or look at. It's a very simple, straightforward word, like when you notice a nice car or you notice um, uh, a great. If you're if you if you love food, you know you notice a great sandwich, um, but. It's just a glance. Instead, he uses this word theoreo, which is where we get the word theorize. So if you're like, oh man, he's going to talk about smart words. No, it just, you're in school now, so it's okay. To theorize means to ponder. Theoreo means to, to study or to gaze at, to be a spectator of, to behold, to think about something with continued, focused, attention. That's what he's doing when he sees a city full of idols. He isn't just noticing it. He's noticing it and then he's thinking about what he's seeing. He actually starts his speech that way. He says, when I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. If we want to be people who normally and naturally share our faith, we need to be people who who do that, who see what Paul saw, who look carefully at what our objects of worship are. It's the same word. Um, So he didn't just notice and ponder. He thought about it. And then he had a reaction to it. He says, I am greatly distressed over the idols. Now, maybe your Bible says provoked, or your Bible app, or it says irritated or upset. Uh, The Greek word is paraoxeno, I think, or something like that. It means like to have a seizure, and it means this severe attack or this sudden increase in intensity. And so that gives us an idea of what he felt, but it doesn't really explain more than that. So, To think about that, we need to think about where else it's used in the Bible. So this is what I do when I look. I go, okay, so it's here. Where else is it? Oh, it's in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It says that love, it's the chapter on love. God is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not anger. It does not boast. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrong. So this word is the word for not easily angered. Now, let's look at what it says In the Old Testament, because the Greek was translated, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek Old Testament, and it's used in three, four, five places. So I took three of them, and I thought, huh, let's practice looking at these. So I asked a couple people to read, and uh, Jacob's going to start. So listen, not only to the, the, the words and the type of words, but the context that it's being used in. So Jacob, go ahead.
0: Hosea 8, 5. O Samaria, I reject this calf. This idol you have made, my fury burns against you. How long will you be incapable of innocence?
1: And fury is the word that's used there. That's the... Word, think about and ponder right now that language. And then we've got Mary reading another one. Psalm 106, 28 and 29. Then
0: our ancestors joined in the worship of Baal at Peor. They even ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They angered the Lord with all these things, so a plague broke out among them.
1: And the third one. Isaiah 65.3 All day long they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. So insult is the word that's used that time. So we've got they angered the Lord, they insult me, and my fury burns against them. So we can all play what? do these things seem to have in common? It's not all the same word, but in the, he- in the Greek translation of what the Hebrew was, it's all the same word. What do you see that's similar? Idolatry. Ooh, do you want to say more about that? <laughs> what exactly what, um, is going on with that idolatry? Like, who's, who's doing it or... Yep. Sounds like Israel. And yep. So Samaria is often a place in, in the Old Testament, it's where God, part of God's people lived. So it's actually the same, the same group as Israel. So both of those would be God's people worshiping idols or false gods. Anything else? Rejection, intensity. These people aren't just worshiping false gods. They have actually turned away from God and are pursuing something else. And so these are talking about God's reaction to people rejecting and people practicing idolatry. And it sounds very strong, right? That actually goes in sync with this word that we talked about, about like having a seizure. Like, I have these intense feelings about this. So we talk about God being love. We actually sang about God being this good, good father. It's who he is. And I think people go, yeah, God is love. And what they mean is God is compassionate, God is kind, God is good. Nobody, nobody gets nervous at that. But you start talking about God having this holiness or God being jealous or vengeful or wrathful, and now all of a sudden everybody's like, ooh, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. But I think, I just think, because I've been thinking about this for a couple weeks, we, when we hear the words wrath or jealous or even holy, we put it through the human lens. We think about when humans are jealous, it's because they're either hoarding something for themselves or they're envying something that somebody else has and they really, really want it. And it gets ugly, to be honest. But God, when he's jealous, doesn't, it doesn't negate the other parts, this goodness, this kindness, this love, this holiness. It actually goes through that. So when God is jealous, it goes through this quality of divine love. When he's jealous, it means that I'm protecting something that I want. Something that I am, I am having a reaction to th- this thing that I love, this person that I love, this group that I love that's going the other way. Consider marriage or family. Uh, men in the room. Okay, now, man, if you saw another man bringing your wife flowers, writing her poetry, inviting her out to dinner, what would you do? Would you just go, man, I know she loves that stuff. That is so great that someone is attending to her needs. I mean, I've been super busy at work and maybe I could get some fishing in. I had someone kind of tell me almost that. I might have, might have stretched it a little bit. But, or when you saw that happen, would you be like, oh, man, I need to start working out, tucking in my shirt, shaving more often, taking my wife out to dinner, actually listening to her actively when, when she's talking to me, not just be like, uh-huh, 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 but engaged in what she has to say and what she thinks and what she feels. I want to win her back. That is the type of reaction that God has when we turn away from Him. There is this incense, this outrage, this indignation. That is love. And there is this kindness and gentleness, this holiness. See, the opposite of love is not anger or hate. Certainly, the acts of 9-11 were were full of, of hate. The human trafficking that goes on in the world has anger and violence attached to it. And the school shootings that happen in our country far too often have a hate often associated with them. But the opposite of love Really, truly, the real opposite of love is much more passive. I think the opposite of love is indifference. It's an apathy. It says, I'm not going to pursue you or protect you or provide for you because I don't really care about you. It's the love that Jesus was hitting at when the Good Samaritan story comes up and he says someone was walking along the road and someone was beaten, active, opposite of love. And then, like their own countrymen, walked right by. That is the opposite of love. If we want to be people who normally and naturally bring our faith into every part of our life, we have to see what Paul sees And we do it first by thinking about what we see. And then when we feel it, we let ourselves feel it. We have to feel what Paul feels. And Paul had these complex feelings. There was outrage and indignation. He was distressed. He was troubled. He was provoked over these idols. And yet, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious. He's calm. He's got self-control. He's gentle. He's reasoned. He's got both of these things happening. He went in and he reasoned in the public square. He spoke daily. He debated, but that debate doesn't have to be uh, aggressive. It actually sounds controlled and reasoned like the words that are given. And he's masterful at bringing both of these things together, and I believe that's why He is masterful at bringing his faith into every part of his life because he has both outrage and gentleness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's why I'm not awesome at it because I'm pretty, I have one or the other. You can kind of guess. (laughs) I'm either... Outraged and filled with truth, or I'm filled with gentleness and I have tears. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? Jesus is friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're these three adult uh, siblings that live in the same house. They're some of Jesus' best friends. He goes to their house. He's, he doesn't have them as any of the official 12 disciples, but he spends a lot of time with them. In one story, it says that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, meaning she is a disciple. She is learning from Jesus. And Lazarus gets sick, and Jesus intentionally waits to go there. And four days pass by, and he then goes, because he's got a greater plan for that moment. But when he arrives, both sisters say the exact same thing to Jesus. In John 11:21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the same thing in 1132. Mary reached that place, she fell at his feet, but she said the same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet to Martha, Jesus answers with this truth, this toughness. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Almost like Jesus is lovingly, but firmly reprimanding her. And then, when Mary says the same thing a few moments later, Jesus' response to her is, Where have you laid him? And he wept. Jesus Christ is filled with outrage and truth. And at the same time, he's filled with his gentleness and these tears. That's what it means to be effective. Because we all have temperaments. We all have tendencies. Some of us are filled with truth and we, we have this toughness and this conviction and others of us are filled with tears and we have this gentleness and this compassion. And they're both good, but if you're someone who's full of truth and only full of truth, you want to make sure that people know that God is love and that he's holy and that what they're doing is not right or it's unwise or it's actually harmful. And you just can't help but bring that. But if you only bring that, then you're going to come across as harsh, overbearing, or even offensive. You won't win your audience. You won't have any gentleness. People will tune you out. you got to have the tenderness and the tears to show people you actually care. But if you only have tears, or the people who are full of tears, they want to make sure that they know God is love, And that he's gracious. And they do it by showing the kindness of God, actually, to a lot of people who don't deserve it, or who are marginalized, or the last in society, or the least in society. But if they only have tears, then they're gonna be too timid, too cowardly, to tell people what they don't know or they might not wanna hear. They need truth to feel the outrage, which gives them the courage to actually say or do something. And all of us fall into one or the other. And it's not really about temperament. It's the fact that no one's transformed by only truth or only tears. We need both. And it's not just true of Christianity. I would say that's probably true of any faith. And if you only go with this temperament, you're you and I are going to be unsuccessful at bringing our faith into the other parts of our life, the marketplaces, if you will. Now, think about your social media feed and whatever social media you have, and if you're like, I don't do social media, then think about the news. Wouldn't you agree that most of the time someone is trying to speak about their faith, not just in general, but on something specific, like in business, or in school, or in government, or even in politics, that the people either sound harsh and maybe even obnoxious or they sound timid, you know, and, and cowardly. They, they, they're too vague. They, you're wondering what they actually mean. This is how we fall. And yet Paul is neither harsh nor timid. Paul goes to this place that he integrates these two and he's not Jesus. So I believe that if we can learn this, we can... Be this. And I think that's the solution, to go beyond those natural tendencies. So how did Paul do it? And how can we be people who do it? I think we get a clue in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is speaking to the people of Corinth, which is just south of Athens. I think he goes there next in his mission. And Paul says to the Corinthians, that when I was with you, I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ, and him crucified. In other words, Jesus and the cross. It says I come with fear and trembling and in weakness. That's good. There's this tension. My message wasn't with wise or persuasive words, but was with the power of God. But I focused on Jesus and his cross. I focused on the cross. The cross is the only place, I'm pretty sure of this, the only place in any religion where we see both dimensions of the divine being. Both dimensions of God. Think about it. On one side, you see the toughness of God. The cross is this divine justice being executed against sin and death and evil in the world. That is truth. And on the other side of the cross, you have this tenderness that there's this God that is so full of unlimited, unceasing, unconditional, unstoppable love that he would actually take out this justice on his own son rather than lose humanity. That is tears. That's tenderness. The cross is that place. And, and if you don't have a cross in your faith, or if you think you're a Christian but you don't understand the cross, then you slide to the toughness or tenderness of religion, which actually becomes moralistic religion or relativistic religion. You either have a God who is so demanding and you need to live up or else, so you walk around in fear or you know, just always wondering if, if you're good enough, or it's this loving accepting you know place where everything's okay but and it's this god who whose love you know who says he's loving but the love cost him nothing and moralistic or relativistic religion or faith never changed anyone the cross changes people Cross can come into every part of our life. God is so holy that Jesus Christ had to die. And God is so gracious that Jesus Christ had to die. We need to feel what Paul felt. And we need to see what Paul saw. Paul saw. A city full of idols, but before he saw the idols, he saw the cross. We need to look at the cross. We need to see both sides because when Paul has the cross seared into his heart, he becomes a different person. He becomes something that we're not. He's filled with both outrage and tenderness. He brings all of that in. He thinks so highly of God and so highly of people that he will stop at nothing because God has stopped at nothing to see these two groups be reunited and restored. And come on, we know no matter where we walk into in our life, whether it's sports or work or our neighborhood, you can tell someone that loves God and loves people they can do it because the cross has changed them. That's the person who's successful at bringing their faith into every part and normally and naturally sharing it. That's what we say when we're, we say at Restoration, we are people who are being restored by Jesus. We know we can't do it on our own. We need, we need either more outrage or we need more tenderness. And we're bringing hope into the world. and in order to really look at the cross we have to see the idols that are in the way and we got to lay them down i mean look at look at athens paul saw this this greek statue apollos the god of art nothing wrong with art art's a great thing but when we worship art it's an idol You might be, I don't know how to worship art. I don't worship art. I don't, like, bow down to a painting or something. No, but if you've ever written something or created something, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I'm awesome. Now I'm worth something. Or somebody praises that thing you created, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah. Or somebody criticizes it, and you're like, oh. Then then that's an idol in your life. Or, this one's kind of easy, but Aphrodite, goddess of beauty. Nothing wrong with beauty. We should want to look our best. But if we have a bad hair day or a nasty acne day and we're crushed, we're not sure we can go out into the world, we might be worshiping a god of beauty. Everybody has idols. Everybody worships something. Work's easy. There's nothing wrong with taking pleasure in your work, but if you work all the time and think that you're not anything, if you don't work, then it's an idol. And if you're, if you're not sure you have an idol, then I want you to think about something that if you lost it, or you could never do it again, and you don't know how you could get up the next day, and that's your idol. So as the worship team comes back up, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, God, would you show me what I might be holding as an idol? And if he shows you, would you have the strength and the humility to lay it down? God, where our idols. As we come to you, God, I thank you that you love us, that you can be a God filled with outrage and indignation, that we would turn our backs from you, and, and you would show us grace and this unconditional love, this acceptance, this kindness, that you would run after us, you would pursue us, you would even offer your son, your only son, the son you love, to bring us back to you. I pray that we would see the cross, God, that we would feel what Paul feels, that we would see what he sees. God, I pray, I I believe you, I believe he prayed, God, break my heart for what breaks your heart. That when we see in our own life or someone else's life an idol, that we ask you to fill us with outrage and gentleness, to move into these places normally and naturally to help people see a God who loves them. And for some of us, God, that is us. We need to see that. We have been following another idol, another God. And we don't need those falsehoods anymore in our lives. We need to be people who you say we are, God. We need to believe Jesus, you have freed us and forgiven us. And we don't have to live in that sin or that shame anymore. God, I pray that you would move us into that place. I pray for those that have aches, God, today. Maybe it's a stomach ache or a headache or a backache, but God, maybe it's a heartache. There is a relational distance, not just between them and you, God, but between them and someone else. And I pray that you would bring healing to those situations today, God, that you would bring the fullness of your love to those situations. God, thank
0: you for your cross.